Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about The Hand of God, or in the original Italian, Estata la mano di Dio. <laughs> My fancy Italian coming out of there. Uh, written and directed by Paolo Sorrentino. This is the yes. first film of his that I've seen. He's ah. most famous for The Grand Belletta. Yes, did we not see that together? No. Ah. Um, he won uh, his only Oscar for that, uh, Best uh, Foreign Language it's a film. beautiful film, yes. And he's also very well known for Il Devo. I have not seen that. From what I understand, because I've read a little bit around, this is a very, very personal film. It's kind of quite a clear film about his own youth. It's an autobiographical film. Actually, there's an eight-minute accompanying film to this on Netflix where mm. he takes you around some of the main sets of the city, some of the main sites in the city that were used in the film. And it includes... His apartment, yeah, where he grew up and he lived for 37 years in this apartment with his parents, yeah. I didn't watch that, but the, I, I did see it was available. The film is a Netflix original, made for Netflix. One of the things that I got from reading around it slightly, from seeing one or two reviews, is that the filmmaking style that he's become known for is quite showy, and that's not the case here. Is that something that you would... Uh, I think it's still quite, quite showy, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, the film begins with this extraordinary zoom... Yeah, into the Bay of Naples. Uh, it has all this extraordinary image in the caves and, you know, when the monk, uh, the little monk appears and there's that chandelier that's broken down. I mean, I was thinking that because the thing is that he uses this kind of wide-angle lens, really. Yeah, or... or his, Sometimes it gets quite extreme. Yeah, his frame is a very expansive one. So you'll often have a person in this huge space, or three or four people, or ten people, right? But the predominant shot seems to be kind of almost like a medium long shot or something. Yeah, like a kind of, you know, it's uh, it's a widescreen frame, and he leaves a lot of space for people in the frame. And I often thought it was kind of inelegant. Yeah, really? Yeah, that it's kind of zooming in and out. And I thought, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't my memory of his films, because... And then I realized, well, the thing about his films is that it's got extraordinary imagery conceptually. So it's not necessarily about the composition, yeah, mm-hmm. but it's almost about what's in the frame. Yeah, these really memorable images. I mean, you know, the person hanging from the ceiling mm-hmm. in, you know, when he visits the Capuano set, or those shots of the family, you know, when they're eating together in the summer. Yeah, that kind of are shot through corridors, yeah, with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, um, you know, that John Ford shot, really. Uh, so the, there's imagery that is very, very memorable. But actually, I don't think it's because of the compositions. I think it's because of the way, yeah, that the images are conceptualized and then deployed, right? So, for example, that whole scene in the cave with the conversation between the young... Fabietto. Fabietto and Capuano... I mean, it's very beautiful and evocative, and uh, it's a perfect setting for that scene, actually, you know, because it is about the past and the present and the future. The existence of that place alone kind of evokes something, you know, mm. uh, uh, along those terms. But it's not the composition that makes those shots beautiful, it's the cave itself, yeah, mm. and then emotionally what's happening in relation to it. I'm not sure I totally agree with that, but I do see what you're getting at. Mm. Um, well, I thought it was an extraordinarily beautiful film. I watched this, we watched this separately, um, and part of the reason that we did is because 
a year ago I bought this new telly that's got HDR and it's big and it's flash and stuff. And um, this is available on Netflix in Dolby Vision, which is a high dynamic range mm. format. So you get kind of brighter brights, darker darks, more uh, a greater range of colours. Mm. And, and in fact, we're going to talk about um, Don't Look Up in the following podcast, and that's also available in Dolby Vision, because mm. that's a Netflix mm. film. And I watched that one first, and I thought, what is the point of HDR? And it, it, I, so it didn't look, you know. And then I watched this today, and I thought, oh, here is the purpose. Mm. You know, you get these beautiful, beautiful shots of kind of the bay at night, where it's pitch black, and just these lights the flinking lights, on yeah, the water. I remember those shots. Gorgeous. I mean. I love oh. the rack focuses. I think that I mean the fo- it, it's so precise. Mm. You know, I, I do kind of get what you mean about the compositions maybe not always feeling like they're perfectly set up the way you you might want them to be, but there are these rack focuses early on in the kind of lunch scene where all the the whole family is there. It's a big big get together. There are these cuts between different lenses, mm. so sometimes it's a very expansive wide frame. Mm. Actually, you get these shots when someone's looking directly into the camera; they're addressing the main character basically, and it's like this kind of inquisitive, uh, sort of almost interrogative mm. camera that's like the, the person's right there mm. in front of the lens. Mm. And then you get these ones which are more conventional, longer lenses. Mm. And in those, you get, you know, uh, three or four people sat at this long table, staged in depth, and the camera will wrap between them. And it's just so, you know, mm. like when exactly on the line of dialogue. It's like, it's it's kind of, it feels like you're praising the film for just doing its job, but it, I noticed it. And it's I interesting. It. I mean, I, you know, my feeling was that the film is a very beautiful looking film. Though, of course, it's set in Naples and in Capri and in Stromboli, right? Like, how could you not? film something beautiful in front of a volcano, mm. you know, with the steam kind of rising as the young man overlooks like this, you know, pristine water, right? Like it looks beautiful. But the beauty does not come from the way the shot is composed. Though, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not... It's not devoid of that. It's not devoid of that, you know. But I was, you know, I was looking at the um, original West Side Story, which played on television yesterday. I thought you'd bring this up. Yeah, and, the, you know, just the compositions were so extraordinary, yeah. actually. Yeah, You know, uh, so this is a film that is beautiful for many reasons. The setting, the locales, the way that he conceptualizes scenes, uh, what he gets out of actors, which I think is kind of magical, and also the way that he kind of conceives of all of these multiple relationships, you know, which dramatize the hurts, the meanness, actually, you know, the petty rivalries and so on, but that actually are very loving, yeah, and that always kind of contain this mixture of elements. To me, that's where, like, kind of, you know, the beauty of this film lies. Apparently. Sure. Um, so let's briefly say what it's about. I mean, I've already said that um, this is based on Sorrentino's own youth, and this, is, this will be a plot spoiler, but it is something that's mm. uh, happened in his life. Sorrentino's parents died of carbon monoxide poisoning uh, when he was 16 years old. And this is something that is dramatised in the film. This happens to the to the main character here. But it happens halfway through. There's a lot that happens beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's kind of... Like, it seems like the basis of the film is, is it, it's, it's yeah. getting to grips with that. You mm. know? And, and I mean, staging that and filming that must have been so difficult when you think mm. about it. Mm. And the reason that Sorrentino didn't suffer the same fate was because he was out watching Napoli the local football team, because they signed Diego Maradona and he was crazy about mm. Maradona. He's crazy about Napoli. And he was at the game and there's this idea that Maradona saved me. Mm. right? And this is what one of the characters at the funeral says to him, in fact. Yes, his uncle. 
Yeah. I was never quite clear on the exact relationships in the family. Yeah. Uh, um, that was his uncle, the lawyer. I mean, you know, it's just like Italians, isn't it, to go on about the bloody hand of God. Yes. You know. Actually, <laughs> I was very curious to know what you, as an Englishman, <laughs> thought about that whole discourse, you know, when when it happens. And it is like, oh, that's the hand of God. <laughs> you know, Maradona is divine. <laughs> like, yeah. It's interesting because... Yeah. You know, All these imperialists, you know, long live the Maldives. <laughs> La, Las Malvinas. Las Malvinas, yes. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is the Spanish name for what we call the Falklands. Yes, and um, they were used to, they were careful to use the Spanish name, not the English yeah, name. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because that, that character as well, who, who speaks about that goal being a political act and an act of revenge for Las Malvinas, is a communist. He says so. Yeah. He says we're all communists, I think. Or maybe, no, maybe no, another character. It's the father who says I'm a you're right, communist. It was the it's not the uncle. You're right, you're quite right. But, no, but that line has come up earlier and it reverberates there, I think. But that was also a joke. Getting it back for the... Oh, yeah, sure. Because the father's, you know, the father is a banker, right, who lives in this big apartment that is clearly like a bourgeois (laughs) apartment, you know, and so he's saying, I'm a, you know, he's saying I'm a communist, (laughs) right, in the middle of this this quite grand apartment. And then the focus is, and we're honest people, we don't lie, we have to go to (laughs) apologize to the neighbor for the practical joke. Yeah, So, you know. Um, but it's, it's interesting that they watched the Argentina game, England-Argentina, in the 86 World Cup as Argentina fans, mm. right? They're Italians, right? They should be supporting Italy at the World Cup, but they love Maradona. It's all about Maradona. It's all about Maradona, yeah. Um, and then when he scores that goal, one character refers to it as his political act, and he talks about revenge for Las Malvinas, and he talks about, in a kind of celebratory mood, the line is something like, it's a scam, to, you humiliated the uh, imperialists, oh, yes. something like that. <laughs> And I thought, you know, I thought, I thought, well, it's one of those things where it comes up as an Englishman, you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, that goal again. Even yeah. though it was two years before I was born. Yeah. You know, it's still like, oh, God, dude, can we never live this down? <laughs> <laughs> but I really liked it. And I th- I, so here's an interesting thing. I, when I vaguely heard about the film, and in fact, everywhere that I've read little bits and pieces about it, they all refer to it as a drama, and I see that. But for at least the first half, I thought this is a comedy. Well, I mean, that's the thing with with uh, Sorrentino, you know, because the films, well, they're always full of a kind of sadness for me, actually, but they're always very funny, yeah. and they're always very loving, and they're always very social. Like, you know, there is a kind of a cultural and political critique that goes along mm. with what is a family saga or a building roman about a child's coming of age, right? The film has all of that but within kind of larger or more complex structures. Yeah. yeah, and I understand that, you know, a film doesn't have to be one or the other and mm. can combine the two and so on. Um, but it really struck me as, as it was being kind of played as a comedy and, and structured as a comedy. You know, and, and those goals, those two goals that Maradona scores against England, play as that. So the first one is... A, well, it's not that's not so much a comedy, but it, it's quite a funny moment. They're all celebrating and it's kind of light, it's light at least. Mm. The second one is the goal of the century, famously. Yeah. It's the greatest goal ever scored, uh, where he dribbled around the whole England team. And he, and he and, misses that, right? No, no, well, they, the characters miss it. Yes. The characters are having a fight at the time. Yes. So that, to me, is a joke. Yeah. Really. I'm sure that's intended as, they miss the greatest goal ever. Um, I was thinking about the um, summer lunch scene we mentioned mm-hmm. early on, and how the, I mean, there are lots of jokes going on in it, and, you know, there's the whole kind of matriarch of the family wearing her mink coat and just hurling insults at people. Cheese. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's a whole comic kind of setup. But there's a thing about we're waiting for so-and-so to arrive with her partner, mm. and we've all heard about this guy, but we don't know him. 
And then as they eventually turn up, you see she's this very, very large woman. And there's been talk about she's like 42 years old and who she managed to get at this time in her life. And this guy is 70 and he speaks with a voice box, which is a funny sound. I mean, I apologise to anyone who has a voice box, but mm. it's a funny sound. And it's played as one in the film. Yeah, it's made as a joke, yeah. And, and this, is, this is a comic setup. Um, but then what I thought is, God, these people are ghastly because no one's nice to him. No. I thought... I, I do understand a kind of... It's a large family which engages in a lot of bantering among itself. Mm. And that's the kind of people they are, right? But they're not very nice to this outsider. And, and that was the time I started to think, these people are awful. I don't like them very much. I like them. And I don't think they're awful. Uh, you know, because the thing is that they do it to everybody. I mean, you know, they tease the matriarch, the mother, right? Get her to swear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's in the family. It's like, not, you know. Well, but new. the other guy's coming into it. And mm. actually, you see him at the end, where he then is very much a part of it, right? Yeah. Uh, so so I I love that, in fact, because I think it does get on the under, you know, the underlying dynamics about family life are much more honest where, you know, there's always somebody that's being criticised and there's always somebody that's being put down and, mm. you know, uh, and there's, you know, always somebody who's, like, on the verge of going to jail or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> the film is full of wonderful moments and it's it's largely formless as the plot goes. It's, it's I mean, there is a plot, obviously, but it's a film that's constructed out of character and moments and I wouldn't quite say vignettes, but scenes are roughly self-contained. Well, there there are vignettes, but that add up to a way of life and also a tone. I mean, one of the things that I love about uh, Sorrentino is that he, he, he has these people that are recognizably real, in quotation marks, but they're also complete oddballs. Right, mm-hmm. you know, so the aunt who's like a three hundred pound, yeah, who weighs three hundred pounds, or you know, the other older aunts who are wearing like this kind of makeup. There's also there's something about them that makes them slightly grotesque, mm. yeah. Uh, and the film kind of embraces that, right? So in that sense, it's a little bit Fellini esque, though it doesn't fetishize it in the way that Fellini can sometimes uh, uh, seem to do so. Mm. Um, and the film references Fellini yeah, quite openly. Quite openly, yeah. Uh, so, so I think there are kind of those those elements in the film. There's an element of, you know, of loving grotesquerie, yeah. Amongst, mm. I mean, that scene where the ant, right at the very beginning, is waiting for the bus, you know, and the camera moves in on her, you know, and you see this beautiful woman in white mm. with these enormous breasts with the nipples sticking. Mm, yeah. I mean, you know, that's, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic image, right? Uh, but it's also kind of extreme in its own way. Yeah, like kind mm. of, you know, uh, I love that about Sorrentino's filmmaking. Thinking about the opening scene is interesting because I had no idea what this film was about. I didn't mm. even know it was anything to do with Sorrentino's own child or anything like that and I had no idea what to expect mm. turning this on so I turn it on and it's a weird stylized drama in that opening scene yes right this woman in this you know kind of white dress you notice her she gets picked up by a stranger who knows all about her mm. um, and this guy is Sam something or other you know she, she doesn't know who he is but apparently she should his name is well known or something he's in the back of a car being chauffeured around get in I can help you have a, a child with your partner, he says, you're, you're struggling to conceive. Mm. 
And then there's this thing about the um, the little monk. And also the name that he gave himself was something like San Miguel or something like that, who is a saint, or San Sebastian, or, yeah, the son implies yes, he's a yeah, saint, yeah. right? And he appears, of course, in his 1920s. Now, it could be a surname, yeah, but it definitely has the connotations of a saint. Mm. And in fact, he promises a miracle, Yes. right? So, I mean, you know, what I like about uh, Sorrentino as well is that he does explore life, right? But obviously he does so sometimes through imagination, through the fantastical, through the mm. magical, through, you know, the, the fairy tale or the religious or, yeah, kind of something that goes outside of the physically bounded experience of the yeah, quotidian. And so in this sense, it almost begins like a fable, right? Like, well, this is exactly what I thought. The word fairy tale occurred to me too. Mm. And then the Baroness character kind of felt like it carried that on a little bit. Um, where I mean, she may well be a baroness, but she lives upstairs. She, she's definitely a baroness. Yeah. You know, and that also made me think of the peculiarities of the nobility without a monarchy, you know, in the late 20th century. Uh, uh, Sorrentino has a similar vignette in The Great Beauty, where I think the countess in that one you know, they rent themselves out to dress up dinner parties. Right. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're now so impoverished, right? Like, yeah, all they have is their pride and their title and yeah. maybe like an odd fancy jewel that they could wear to a party, right? So they end up renting themselves out to a party. So this idea of the baroness next door who's really living, you know, the same way that a middle-class family is, but, you know, that she clearly feels she's reduced to that, <laughs> yes? Yeah. 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 Uh, I thought that was funny. I also thought the other neighbors... Who were clearly, you know, uh, uh, you know, who put, put past themselves off as Austro-Hungarians, you know, implying the difference between the north of Italy, which is the richer part, and the mm. south, which is the poorer part. And then you arrive in their apartment, and it really feels like, you know, one of those, uh, uh, you know, middle European country homes with like a stag's head. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. And I thought that was a fantastic visual joke, actually. Yeah. You know, you open the door to their home and there's like... <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the fairy tale thing, kind of, it felt to me quite deliberate and it felt like a knowing sort of reference, in a way, to the idea of mythologising. Like, it's it's... it's this isn't a document of Sorrentino's past. It, these are fictional characters. It's a work but, of imagination. Um, and so there's a, there's a feeling of myth- mythologization of uh, his youth. Maybe, though. I, w- I wouldn't use that word, actually, because it's not as if he's bigging himself, his youth up at all. No. It's, no. you know, as if he's using the fantastical as a way of giving ac- him access to a greater truth or even a greater range of dramatization. So, for example... It's possible that, you know, he had an aunt who was driven a a bit mad by her inability to have children. Mm. Yeah. But then you think, you know, this nudity in the boat scene and so on. I mean, Mm. yeah, you could if you open the film, you know, with access to the fantastical, then you could do other things in it that don't feel weird. Mm. Right. You know, and that perhaps get at an inner depiction of what this woman is going through better than you could do in a in a literal biographical way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that is true. Um, so, so I I love that about the film. Mm. I also liked that the film is kind of about life, uh, and it's also about filmmaking. Yeah, uh, and actually, I wonder what you thought of that whole discussion with 
uh, what's the director's name again? Cap- Antonio Capuano. Capuano. Who's a real director a and real... was, in fact, someone who hired um, Sorrentino. Sorrentino when he was young and became kind of a mentor. And he's still going, Capuano. He's 81. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what do you think of that discussion about filmmaking between, you know, the young boy wannabe filmmaker and Capuano in the cave? Yes, yeah. Well, that ends up on the on the shore looking out at Napoli. That's one thing I really liked about it ultimately was the idea that you don't have to go to Rome. Yes. Um, and Capuano apparently is someone who, yeah, he's from Naples himself uh, as a Sorrentino but he, he's never left. You know, that's mm. where he made his films. And, and the rejection of, you know, there, there's this thing, it, it remi- the whole film reminded me of Eva Toloni as well. The yes, Eva Toloni, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which ended, I think, with the one character going off on a train. Like mm. it, the thing about that film is, it's they're stuck in this place, yes. you know, and eventually one of them gets away. And this film ends with the character end going on a train somewhere. Um, but I really like Capuano's rejection of that. That isn't this place beautiful, as you said at the start. It's got everything, yes. um, you know, which is essentially what he's saying. What what can you get in Rome that you can't get here? I thought it was kind of really invigorating, and this idea it. it um, this line that he starts repeating to the kid, um, "Don't come undone," yes. which is where he's pushed him into, you know, "What's your story? What's your story?" He says, "Have you got something to say?" And eventually, the kid bursts mm. and says, "They wouldn't let me see my parents in, in the hospital mm. when they died." And then it's like he's fear he fears he's gone too far mm. saying that. He goes, "Okay, don't come undone now." Mm. And he starts to this and. Again, I think there's a, it feels like there's a kind of mythic quality to that because the kid asks, what does that mean? He goes, you have to work it out. Mm. You know, like, do people actually speak like that? I guess maybe sometimes. But it also feels oh, they like... they do. It, My God, yes, yeah. they do. But there's, there's a kind of... Um, there's like a, a Zen kind of mantra thing going on in that way. It's like you can live your whole life with this sentence in your head and not unravel it. Yeah. It feels like, you know... My aunt was telling me the story of, uh, you know, my grandmother going to fetch water uh, uh, from the fountain you know, which is what women used to do, and they would speak to all the neighbors, and, you know, kind of, this is when she was in her 70s or whatever, and uh, the neighbors said, oh, Tomasa, you look so well, you know, life is agreeing with you, and my grandmother responding, my illness is of the soul. (laughs) (laughs) So, I think, you know. Yeah, Yeah, fair enough. What do you make of it? I... I, I loved it. So several things that made me think of. Uh, the first, how we're all still so oppressed by cosmopolitanism. You know, I was thinking like, you know, in Spain, so many of the stories are set in Madrid. You know, you get the occasional ones in Barcelona, though usually they're made by Catalonian filmmakers. You might get a foray into Seville or, you know, the north of Spain. But really, like, you know, mm. I don't really have a visual sense of the country through Spanish cinema, right? I yeah. don't. Uh, I think it's less true, but still largely true of Britain. Yeah, so if you think of how many films are set in London, yeah, very London or, or the home counties or... So two things. There's no reason why an industry can't be based in a capital, but actually the stories are made about elsewhere, right? About elsewhere that is here. So I love that whole discourse. I also love the tone of it, you know, because uh, the guy says, do you have balls? <laughs> and, the, and the kid says, I don't know. <laughs> <It's quite laughs> yes, do you have courage? I don't know. <laughs> right? like, I don't think so. Right? Uh, yeah, so I love the 
yeah, hmm. that kind of uh, thing. I was interested in this notion that, you know, films are not about reality. I mean, certainly there's a whole strand of English thought that would disagree with that, that values maybe a, an overly simplistic notion of reality above all else. You know, but kind of here Capuano argues that reality is a starting point to imagination and the, yeah, and the mm. kind of the, what you need is imagination and fantasy and so on uh, to tell the story. Um, so I, I just thought that, that that was like an interesting discussion also of what is cinema to Sorrentino, mm. right? And, you know, kind of... Well, Fabietto has kind of a key line mm. towards the end. I think Sorrent... Is it in that conversation where he says... Uh, something like I'm tired of reality. I want to go back to my to the way life was, my imagined life. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what that's right. Yeah, um, to my imagination before the tragedy hit. Yeah. If, effectively, yeah. Um, so, uh, so I kind of I love all that. And what did you make of the whole relationship between him and the and the smuggler, the smuggler who wants to you mm. know drive those boats. Right, and again, they make the sound zoom zoom or whatever you know. Yeah, yeah. So how they he loves the sound of the boat on the water, because that is quite a strand in the film. It's developed over different scenes, Mm. right? Yeah, and I was trying to think, this is such an interesting film because it goes off on tangents like that, right? Mm. You know, and yet they're not quite tangents. They do feed into the themes of the film. So what? I just was curious. What did you make of it? Well, I don't know what you made of it in terms of, you know, what, what do you see in it? <laughs> well, I don't know. What, well, it, two things. The themes in which, to, into which it feeds. Well, one is about an attitude of freedom, yeah, because, you know, this smuggler, he's just having fun. He's just having fun with the police, yeah, mm. he's kind of, you know. Uh, also, you know, he doesn't see himself as a smuggler, he doesn't see anything wrong with the smuggling, it's just a way of, you know, making a living, mm. right? Um, they have a lot in common, they both end up kind of, orphans though for different reasons Mm. you know uh uh one because the guy has a father and a mother but he doesn't really have them right and the other one because he did have them but he lost them Mm. right uh then uh you know one is really prone to violence the other one isn't yeah so so the thing is it's one of the many stories yeah that napoli has to offer Yeah. yeah and on the other hand he ends up in prison so that actually there is something about remaining yeah, in that place that doesn't give you mm. yeah, many opportunities, right? So I think it feeds into all of those strands in the film and it feeds into the young boy's dilemma, you know, because even in spite of this, you don't need to go to Rome. There's a million stories to tell here. Yes, he does need to go to Rome, yeah? Mm. So, and he ends up on a train to Rome. Right. Yeah. yeah, to maybe come back later and film these stories in Napoli, as we see, this is the evidence of that. <laughs> but nonetheless, he needs to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was the only um, reference. I, mean, I don't know Naples particularly well, but I, I, mean, we don't, saw, I don't know it at all. I'd love to. See, I'd love to go. We yeah. saw um, we saw the Diego Maradona movie by um, Asif Kapadia, mm-hmm. the director, which gave a, an overview of Maradona's life there and his involvement with or kind of subjection to the mafia mm. the local crime and that was in this film the, the place where I thought I felt, it felt like something missing that's something kind of vaguely know about Naples mm. um, that it does have this criminal underbelly and it felt so it felt like an inclusion for that purpose to some degree um, 
the freedom thing, it came up again when uh, Capuano talks about freedom. I'm free. Mm. Because the thing, it's, he meets Capuano because he stands up in a theatre. Mm. This character also says, you're free. I yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like That's yeah. where it joins up. Cap, Cap, he meets Capuano when he stands up in a play mm. and, uh, and tells the actress to fuck off. Because she's shit. And he chases him down. He says, yeah, you're not allowed to do that, but I can do that because mm. I'm free. Mm. And that's when it, it comes together. And yeah, there is... It didn't feel very strong, but now that I, you know, put these things together, there is a thing of the kid being, to some extent, imprisoned. He's imprisoned by his own sexual inexperience as well. Yes, and also, you know, if you relate this more broadly to at least, you know, the Neapolitan films that I know, like the De Sica ones, you know, The Bay of Naples, or there's another one with Sophia Loren, you know, who sells cigarettes... In fact, you know, and she's caught and she's got to go to jail. But rather than go to jail, she keeps having babies because you can't put a pregnant woman in jail, <laughs> right? Um, you know, that picaresque, you know, kind of breaking the laws. You're an honest person, but, you know, breaking the law is necessary if you want to keep body and soul together. Mm. You know, that kind of attitude uh, that, you know, kind of the law is there but you have to have an eye cocked towards it because it's not always just. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it certainly doesn't always allow you to get by in life uh, or to make an honest living. Because, yeah? I mean, it's not that these people are stealing millions. They're just working every day trying you know, to make a living. Mm. But the police keeps interrupting. They both revolve around cigarettes and those, yeah. Uh, so I thought it was a kind of a harking back to kind of a culture, to an attitude, yeah. You know, so for example, I mean, I think in England... Though, you know, the country is largely law-abiding, there's always this sense of, oh, I know a mate who, you know, this thing fell off a truck and is selling his TV, right? Like, yeah, there is also that kind of attitude, yeah, that people would self-identify as part of, you know, mm. uh, uh, English culture. That's where that element comes in in this film, the picaresque, criminal, but loving dimension of Neapolitan culture is exemplified by that guy where the young boy is quite uptight yeah he's studying mm. philosophy and he's the classics and he gives classic quotations yeah to remark on everyday situations yeah mm. so you know it's quite bourgeois yeah mm. so this thing of freeing himself up this encounter is you could argue is almost as necessary as his parents death and they actually almost come almost at the same time yeah or i mean they meet initially through maradona but then kind of is cemented almost at the same time as the parents die. Mm. So, you see, what seems like an odd tangential strand is a way, I think, of Sarantino bringing together all of the film's themes and dramatic developments, but adding layers to it, yeah? Mm. So in this case, kind of commenting on the culture and, you know, as a whole, not, and not just on the character. Yeah, because there's a thing of where does this character stand vis-a-vis -vis the culture he lives in? Yeah, and in some ways, of course, he is of it, but in some ways he is removed from it. Mm. Anyway, that's my theory. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> All right, so shall we wrap it up here? Mm. So I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful film, uh, a very, very rich and funny film, and it's on Netflix. Yeah, if you've got an uh, HDR TV, then... Watch it in a nice dark room, lights off, it'll glow. It's fantastic looking.
Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at eavesdropmovies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.